Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome podcast listeners to the Absolute Return podcast. On today's episode of the podcast, we welcome special guest David Vanka, who is partner, managing director, and portfolio manager at ICM Asset Management. At ICM, one of the investment strategies that he runs is the ICM Crescendo Music Royalty Fund. Today, we take a deep dive into music royalty investing with David, in which we talk about how he got into music royalty investing, return expectations, how the asset class works, and the appeal of music royalties for investors. Personally, I love both music and investing, so I found David's insights on the asset class to be fascinating. So without further ado, here is our chat with David Vanka on music royalty investing. Welcome, Dave, to the podcast. We're really excited to have you on today specifically to chat a lot about investing in music royalties. I'm definitely fascinated by that topic. But before we get into the details on investing in music royalties and that entire industry, streaming, etc., why don't you give us and our listeners a quick background on what you've done in the investment business and how you got to where you are today. Sure, sure. And I don't think you're going to find anyone with a with a straightforward path to the music royalty space. But but thanks again for having me, Julian and Michael. And, and, and thanks again for the podcast series, because I have really enjoyed a number of the other podcasts and and certainly even listening last week about the Supreme Takeover. Having had a 18 year old, I've had some experience trying to buy things online at Supreme and it's fascinating how they uh, <laughs> they create scarcity and, and brand awareness and I still don't get it but uh, 2.1 billion dollars says otherwise yeah my background uh, you know I grew up in interior British Columbia came to Calgary to build a build a career out here for university and uh, and started out as a CA now as now a CPA you know in part because you know really didn't have the exposure and understanding of what the finance and, and banking world looked like and always knew uh, I'd be guaranteed a job of some way shape or form and I, and I do still think it's a it's a great background for for anybody uh, to have those skills and uh, that discipline to get through the program but um, when I was getting getting married at my receiving line I was recruited uh, to go work at a company called Peters & Co in the mid 90s and joined them uh, as part of the investment banking team, which we built up for a number of years, uh, and ultimately moved over to the trading business around 2000 when liability trading was just beginning to take hold in the marketplace. And, and you know, obviously from a lot of your funds and, and your long short funds, uh, dealt with a lot of clients in that space and, and traded a lot of risk arbitrage at the time with clients, particularly in New York. And a fascinating time, and really before technology had taken over that business, but um, in 2002, I was looking to spread my wings a little bit beyond what was, you know, quite frankly, I, I was on the executive committee at Peters and it was a great business, but uh, looking at other opportunities and more globally. And, and eight of us came together and started a firm called Tristone Capital, uh, which was, you know, for better or worse, a comp competing investment bank to, to Peters and First Energy, uh, perhaps with a little bit more of a global focus at the time, and built that out through 2002 to 2009. Uh, it had a great run. Ultimately, 
after 2008, we went through Lehman and, and Bayer and, and the credit collapse, uh, and we're making some decisions as a, as a partnership because we had built a global footprint. But to really capitalize on it, we needed a lot more capital to do that. So we're exploring discussions uh, to bring in incremental capital and, and ultimately got several offers to, to acquire the firm. And you know, it was just time, I think, to do that at that, at that particular moment. Um, I was not particularly interested in, in, in staying on and having the golden handcuffs, so to speak. So moved on to the buy side of the business with Gluskin Chef out of Toronto, working with high net worth clients and, and, and products uh, for a number of years and uh, got talked back into the banking business when energy was, was, was booming again. But uh, you know, really was looking a, a lot of the way through of considering starting, starting my own fund or, or vehicle. And you know, that ultimately led me to ICM Asset Management, which was a firm that had been rooted in real estate, uh, starting with some German family offices and, and through probably about 6,000 individual investors today, and focused on uh, value add uh, real estate uh, in particular. So the idea there was for for us to follow a model of a, of a Brookfield or a Blackstone in a much smaller way, looking at the alternative space and saying where can we add value to hard assets through different verticals, uh, real estate being one of them, but we also see lots of other opportunities in, in, other, in other segments. And my focus now is on the private equity business, which includes uh, venture capital, where we have some connection to the music space in, in a number of our portfolio companies as well. And the Music Royalty Fund was a great opportunity we've been looking at for a few years. Uh, I've been really passionate about the space and ultimately partnered with uh, group called Crescendo Royalty Corp who had been investing in the space as well as a partner from New York named, named Devo Harris who's an interesting character, has a few Grammys himself, uh, was John Legend's roommate in college and Kanye West's cousin. So uh, deep ties to the music industry uh, and an entrepreneur himself. He runs an interactive video company called Adventure which is just rolling out uh, in New York City. So that led us to where we are today career-wise. So with regards to the fund as well, can you talk a little bit with the royalty fund, how you go about identifying the catalogs? You're a little bit into your investment process with the fund? Sure. And I might even back it up a little, a little bit and, and just talk about why you'd even look at the space at, at all. Because 99% of people we speak to haven't heard of it before and 1% knows it, knows it intimately. And just similar to the Accelerate funds, you know, we see a lot of investors, you know, idling through this very low interest rate environment, perhaps overexposed on equities and, and, and realizing that the 60-40 model isn't going to fit their needs anymore. Um, you know, and even when they look at their equity positions, some may not be aware of concentration in, in FANG stocks and other stocks along the way. So we've really seen and, and think we're going to see more acceptance of an absolute return model which will include obviously equities and, and, and bonds at a certain point in time, but obviously real estate, long short funds, infrastructure, farmland, uh, other assets. And we see pensions investing music royalties, not all of them, but there certainly are a handful of them. Uh, Ontario teachers through a group called Anthem, uh, State of Michigan Pension Plan is a significant player. But the UK Railway Pension Plan is a significant player. And, and, and these investors, I think, have looked at the space and said, we've got our own liabilities and our own payments we have to make up over a period of time. We can't get to 6% annuity payments with 
50 basis point 10-year treasuries. Uh, so this is a really intriguing way to uh, add some diversification that kind of matches our, our risk profile. So, uh, and I think the private investor is having the same thing, looking towards retirement. Um, there's no easy way to get your guaranteed 6% or 8% or 5% or whatever you need in this marketplace. And, and um, as an asset class, music royalties uh, does fit a lot of that, those needs. And we're at a spot where we can see and identify and have some transparency on uh, what's happening in the marketplace and valuations and data, whereas five years ago that might have been next to impossible if you weren't one of the large record label. So to go back to your question about, about what we're looking for in catalogs or how we identify them, um, we're trying to build a, a diversified portfolio of assets just like anybody else. So we're somewhat agnostic to the music genre or the artist or the song, but we want to have assets that are saleable down the road, uh, are not going to be correlated in that you know everything we own is subject to the whims of consumer taste or behavior. And, and that's why as we build the portfolio, we're going to have representation from uh, a number of different genres, a number of different artists. And really some of the main things to look for are, are the age of the catalog, so the older the catalog is, the more predictable it will tend to be. Uh, it almost looks like a, a horizontal well when you look at the profiles of some of these, some of the assets. Uh, a song comes on strong for the first couple years and then gets played less or followed less, but there's a very long tail, which is which is more predictable. So for us, we're looking for catalogs that are maybe coming off that initial hype, um, but maybe not yet 30 years old. So uh, everything will be over two years old. The sweet spot for us will be catalogs that are probably five to 10 years old. And, and we do think through the use of data um, and some other factors that we kind of use in our process, it's helping us identify where the risks are in some of these catalogs. Obviously, you know, historically, I think the industry has identified talent and looked at what's been paid over the last year or three years, uh, taken the back of a napkin and multiplied that by a number. And, and cash flow pretty much equals revenue in these, in these assets. So a lot of these deals are being done at what you would call revenue multiples, and these revenue multiples get larger uh, the more well-known the artist is and the more iconic the, the, the songs are as well. Interesting. We always like to see new asset classes emerge, and certainly music royalties seems like one that could be big, but as you indicated, pretty much brand new in terms of the liquidity flowing to investors. And this seems to be like a truly alternative uncorrelated asset class such that, you know, you go through a recession, I don't think people will listen to music less. And so presents a really interesting risk reward stream for investors. And I wanted to get into a bit of the details from an asset class perspective. What are some of the uh, expectations that investors have coming into this asset class in terms of potential returns? If you want to discuss, you know, valuations of specific assets within music royalties, you know, as they increase in popularity, have you been seeing uh, valuations go up and will that temper return expectations in the future? Well, we're targeting returns unlevered in the 8 to 12% range. So I'll start from there because I'm going to give you a much, a much longer answer to a very detailed question. Uh, 
if we look back in the early 2000s to probably 2010, the whole music industry was in was in a bear market. There were physical CDs, people were copying, pirating, uh, Napster, Napster <laughs> downloads, you name it, and and the industry was in a funk. And, and I think really looking for ways to attack to attach to the consumer and and find new revenue sources. Uh, and the other thing that was happening with their consumer is is someone would have their CD budget, they'd buy CDs or download or steal CDs till they were 25, and then they'd stop. And and as a result, we saw this big decline in, in, in the entire space. And then really around 2010, uh, streaming started to become a, a small business. We had the arrival of the smartphones, which you know when we think back was was really not that long ago. Um, we had Netflix flipping from selling D, renting DVDs in in the red boxes and mailing them back to taking a chance on the streaming model, and we just had a proliferation of increasing bandwidth and availability. And and as as time moved on, this this model was being adopted more and and, and more, even. To the extent consumer software, um, we all probably remember buying our Adobe or buying our Microsoft at the at the Best Buy store and plugging in the disc and buying a new one in another two years, and and uh, and that model is entirely moving to the cloud and the subscription base, as, as we all know. So the same things happened in music, and and I think because of the smartphone in particular, it's really enabled consumers to um, change their behavior. And as time goes on, have instantaneous access to, to whatever we want. So the rise in that particular business has really led to the ability to invest in these music royalties as, as we are today. Uh, streaming now represents 80% of the entire music market. Uh, parts of the music market have been hit by COVID uh, given there's no live performances, but the right. streaming side has been strong as well. And you know there, are, there isn't a lot of direct coverage, there's industry coverage, but there are firms like, like Goldman um, you know, you may, they may have their own reasons for doing forecasts and things, but ultimately they're calling for the music industry to go from about 20 billion to 130 billion by 2030. But and you don't have any sell side analysts recommending the new uh, Drake portfolio, do you? No, they may, <laughs> they may have started covering the space when Spotify was listing, but uh, that timing might just be coincidence as well. But the the uh, the actual the actual inertia is still very very high, and I think we're in the first inning of of a lot of these things. So we've got um, consumers looking at their subscriptions to Netflix or Spotify, almost like utility bills now. This yeah. is not discretionary capital. They're almost like utilities. Uh, these have pricing power uh, as well. Um, they can push through additional pricing without having elasticity of losing customers. And then there are multiple sources as well. And when we think about the broader market, um, we're still just scratching the surface, surface on the entire world we start looking at foreign countries and, and as we add bandwidth, whether it's 5G or whether it's um, you know SpaceX's low orbital satellite providing high speed bandwidth anywhere on the planet, uh, there's whole larger groups of consumers in international markets who will, who will continue to adapt to these. So uh, the, the broader macro trend is definitely in a bull market and, and we think that's going to continue for some period of time. Um, with, with catalog valuations, uh, they have certainly gone up in, in value in, in some cases. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, back again, bef you know, before streaming really happened, you know, record labels would advance money, own half the masters, 
that money would effectively be a loan that would get paid off and it would all be done in a, in a dark room somewhere. And really the artists or songwriters didn't have much leverage in those negotiations unless they were superstar. Um, but what's happening now is uh, I think because there's a bit more transparency on the data, uh, there's more artists willing to fund some of their own projects as, as well. And because we've been in the sustained low interest rate, uh, there's more capital looking for other alternative investments. And this is just one when people do roll their sleeves up on it, does fit the return profile. You know, the challenges with it, a lot of the deals are, are, are one-off deals, so they require a network effect. Um, and it's a small community, not dissimilar to downtown Calgary, the oil and gas community, where, where the lawyers and advisors and writers all seem to know each other. And for us, it's been really important to have a good reputation and demonstrate we can close on transactions and be easy to deal with and, and continue to see deal flow. So uh, we've been really happy with the pipeline we've seen to date. Yeah, certainly it seems like that proprietary deal flow is so important. And this is specifically a space I've long been fascinated. Fun fact about me is in university, I was a nightclub DJ, so big fan of music it's my fantastic. whole life. <laughs> yeah. And clearly uh, Spotify and streaming, Apple Music growing like crazy. I have just a massive collection on both platforms. So certainly uh, the macro of this asset class makes sense but from an investor's standpoint i know myself for the past five years i occasionally go on to these different uh, music royalty exchange websites mm -hmm. i think there's uh, at least a couple last time i checked and you could you know pick up a song or two if you want how do uh, you or how can investors access this asset class say when you're looking at a potential asset is it uh, a catalog of dozens or perhaps hundreds of of assets or, or do you do like one-off deals for a specific song for like uh, ten thousand or fifty thousand dollars what what's your average deal look like yeah it's 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 various and I'll, and I'll give you a bit of the market context as well um, well an, an easy way for investors access is to is to come talk to us at our where it can be found at www.musicroyaltyinvesting.com or through the ICM asset management website as well but these these catalogs range in size uh, from anywhere between you know twenty fifty thousand dollars are available to hundreds of millions of, do of dollars and um, the way I think to look at the opportunities for us is, is to find a mix of catalogs where where perhaps we own a few more rights um, we're at a size where we're not necessarily competing against the large industry players, and there's a there's a barbell here, in that you know the big three players, um, a small number of, of funds which are getting larger by the day. Uh, Hypnosis is a public company now in London. There's a fund called Roundhill, which has been a private LP, not necessarily accessible for your average investor, but uh, they've done another raise and they're actually taking their first fund public in, in London. So that will be fun to watch. They're raising capital in the public markets to buy out their first close-end LP and acquire catalogs uh, and, and a few other funds. Um, and then the pensions through various vehicles. Uh, and they really need to do transactions that are have some scale in it to move the needle. So our target market right now is transactions from a couple hundred thousand dollars to five million, and that's the range where we're, we're looking and seeing deal flow. We've also had access to to larger deal flow, uh, which we're just not prepared to to chase at this point in time. 
But because of that, it's, it's not as a competitive as, as a space and the valuations aren't as high as, say, Taylor Swift's Masters being sold for the second time right. uh, to Shamrock in this case, and, and interestingly, without her consent. Uh, <laughs> but that deal was about a $300 million deal. And Hypnosis, um, in their public disclosures, uh, talks about paying, I believe it's around 14 times revenue. Right. Um, we're targeting catalogs in the five to 10 times range. Right. Um, some of that's negotiating power, you know, and, and Hypnosis has a view that they want to own 100% of all the copyrights and, and really increase the value of the asset going forward. Mm -hmm. and, and some industry viewers think they might be overpaying, but the other side of it is as this market continues to improve, they're continuing to acquire great assets by the looks of it from an outsider. Uh, and there aren't a lot of other ways to play the space. So, you know, Hypnosis trades publicly, trades at about a 4.5% yield, 4% yield, I think. And, and for a fund like ours, we're targeting yields closer to 65 to 8%. So a little bit more of a, a value strategy in terms of not looking at paying those premium multiples. That's right. And, and good assets still have uh, multiples attached to it. And when I say good, usually a little bit older, better, better known, and, and better um, likelihood of the artist continuing to, to grow and improve their career. When we look at, uh, you mentioned Royalty Exchange. Royalty Exchange has done a great job of trying to become a market network place in the space, really providing, in particular, songwriters the ability to dispose of some of their, their rights. Uh, and for consumers to buy it. And we look at every transaction on there as well. Um, we don't like to participate in auctions like most people don't. And the other, the other point about royalty exchanges, they're often selling just the assignment of streaming, uh, which, which uh, doesn't necessarily include the copyrights. Uh, and, and quite frankly, what they're selling is predominantly what we're interested in. Uh, but but in in one-off transactions, we we tend to have the ability to get one half of the copyright along the way, uh, and we also think that creates more saleability down the road for the for the portfolio. Uh, the other thing about royalty exchange, they've had a number of artists who have said, well, I might not want to sell my rights, or I might not want to be tied up on them forever. So why don't we carve out? the rights to the income for 10 years and then it reverts back to me. Obviously that's worth less than, than owning them outright uh, because a copyright is typically for the life of the artist plus 70 years. So when Julian and Mike create their band or their DJ duo like the Chainsmokers have a great hit, um, I buy the rights off you, uh, I'll have them for 70 years after you're dead until you resell it. So it's almost a perpetual asset. Uh, but but kudos to what Royalty Exchange is doing, and certainly our, our partners have bought assets off them in the, in the past as well. And I think they've been great about educating the market with, with, with providing transparency on how some of these deals work and providing access to it. But for most individual investors, it, it's hard for them to get a diversified portfolio when they're, when they're throwing you know, hundreds, two hundreds, five hundreds, fifties on these assets. And, and, um, but I certainly see, see the appeal of it and, and, and I expect them to have continued success down the road. Right, and if you could go into a little bit 
from a high level exactly how the mechanics work on one of these investments because I understand it and I'm no expert but you have different aspects of each uh, song and you can own different parts of it with respect to uh, the copyright the streaming mechanical etc yeah well US copyright laws and international copyright laws are a bit of a bowl of spaghetti even for the IP lawyers out there but at the heart of it when somebody creates a song two copyrights are created. There's, there's one copyright for the writing of the song or the composition, and you'll often hear those called publishing rights as well. And, and that song is only made once. From there, the other side of the copyright is called the sound recording or, or the masters you'll, you'll hear. And as an example, Taylor Swift's masters were, were resold. And those masters, can be one individual recording of a song, um, and there can be several different masters for one musical composition, whether there's covers, remakes. In the unique case of Taylor Swift, right now she has said that she is going to be redoing her first six albums, um, which if she does that, I would be, you know, I was surprised that the uh, that Shamrock is, cl is closing on that because that you know they wouldn't be surprised by by that but she can remake her songs and if her fans decide to listen and boycott the old stuff the value of what was just acquired will go basically down basically have two different options if you want to listen to one song which would be a very interesting yeah, yeah. scenario right and she and she's she's the biggest artist in the world so she she's unique and i'm sure they'll come to some agreement to to sort that out but it's an interesting interesting dynamic so there are these two copyrights if you write your own song and record your own song, you own all of them. Uh, most of what we see has songwriters and multiple songwriters, which may also include the artist, and then the artist separate. And then every time a song is played, whether it's played at a restaurant, whether it's played on Spotify, whether it's played in your Peloton class, played on the radio, uh, there's a royalty due to the holder of these rights. And those royalties get collected by central organizations uh, and distributed to the rights holders. So our primary interest is in the rights that are driven by streaming because for us they're a little bit more predictable, but it also can include rights for being played in other sources, include rights for sales of physical, which isn't a big part of the market anymore, public performance, etc. Um, and in the case you just own an assignment of the, of, this, of the royalty interest, you get paid that cash flow. Now the copyrights themselves, you also have the, the additional benefit that you can license these for other purposes and, and typically it's called synchronization. So, uh, you know, companies like, like Disney, Hallmark, Netflix, um, everybody else, commercials, they use songs obviously in, in, in content uh, and pay upfront fees to do that. So that, that's, those sync opportunities are, are fantastic. Uh, for our firm, which isn't necessarily a music publishing business, uh, we can ascribe a lot of value to those, but there, there is value in those, whereas, whereas other firms will be full-time trying to get these sync opportunities out there. And there, there's a lot of pent-up demand, particularly uh, now that production's coming back in a lot of markets uh, after COVID. Well, we're still during COVID, but, but content is being produced again. and. Just speaking to one musical supervisor down in LA, and it, you know it's remarkable. He's talking about a six-part pilot of 30-minute episodes, um, and he asked how many songs does he think we need to license to to be in this. And I thought, oh, maybe six episodes, 50, 60, 80. 
No, he said, you know, 500 to oh, wow. 750. And, oh. and when you actually start to listen to all the little sounds and tidbits and stuff like that, there is, there is huge demand for it. Um, and, and those groups want to easy access to it. So there's a few different re revenue sources from the assets themselves that come, come out of it. And, and um, you know, the other part of looking at these, these opportunities is looking at where the revenue is coming from. So even if you're, if you're acquiring $100,000 in royalties from last year and you think it's going to be 90 or 110 this year, uh, it's important to know is that where that's coming from. Is it coming from streaming services? Is it coming from radio? You know, radio is a radio is a big payer, but when radio falls off, it falls off fairly materially. And then it's also genre specific. So we see, um, you know, hip hop R and B much more concentrated on streaming. But country music, as an example, still has significant radio play. So right. we have to look at those assets a little differently, just depending on where the where, where the assets are. Um, and and where the revenues actually come from. And so when I'm when I'm looking at this sector as well, and I really do appreciate the the fulsome kind of description of how how you invest in the music royalty, all the different areas where you can generate revenue. One thing when you're looking at say a macro trend such as streaming, and there's certain ways that you can play that. You can play that by just by buying uh, Spotify. You can look at owning individual IP on the royalty side or looking at, uh, say, like the music labels, some of them that are publicly traded. Specific, I think the investment case on Spotify has been described a ton, but yep. specifically between owning the actual IP versus the labels, what what sort of, how, how would you look at those two investment opportunities relative to one another? Yeah, I mean the pu the public ones own a, own a lot of things. You know, the, the Warners they have they have labels, they have catalogs. There's a lot of different businesses embedded in there, and and it wouldn't necessarily be a pure play on streaming. Uh, but they're also operating businesses, so you've got uh, employees. Uh, you have operating expenses, you may have capital expenses, all those things that come with just running, running a business, uh, which, which, is, which is different. And, and again, it's been great for the industry to see you know, Spotify success, see you know, Warner's IPO, obviously a, a couple IPOs in, in the music royalty space, but still very rare. Um, whereas if you own the royalty uh, interest themselves or the copyrights, once you acquire those, you're not burdened by incremental operating costs or capital costs. It's not like uh, a real estate investment or a business investment where um, you find you're over budget or, or over time or perhaps something comes up in the project or perhaps the, the business has a slowdown in revenue and you're in an operating loss position. Um, this is top line revenue, which is fantastic. So, you, you know, you can, you can have some incremental administrative expenditures to try and help increase the value of your assets. But really, once you own them, it becomes, it becomes passive in certain cases. And the way the payments work, these performing rights organizations collect uh, they've been around for hundreds of years in some cases. We've got SOCAN in Canada, BMI and ASCAP are examples in the US. And these organizations collect royalties from all these sources and then send you a check typically once a quarter. Some are monthly, some are semi-annually. So as soon as you own the asset, you start getting paid, which is great. It doesn't have the J-curve effect of, of some other opportunities. 
Um, and unlike commodity-based royalty companies, uh, uh, which we, we've got some here obviously in Calgary and some in the mining space as well, uh, music royalties aren't subject to the same commodity price risk or, or requirements of industry activity. So, so really once you own these, um, you're reliant on people listening to them and streaming them and relying to a certain extent on the, on the digital streaming providers and the, and the streaming model to continue. If we all go back to buying CDs, it will be uh, catalog valuations will clearly go down. But we don't see that happening anytime soon with, with the behaviors you're doing. So that's why it's a bit of a nice diversifier to the portfolio. We, we, we rolled into COVID and you know back in March, you know we saw the blow off obviously in the equity market, which is recovered in, in certain cases and, and not others once you get granular. Um, and that's because people have to put money to work. We, we have seen the music, the streaming side of the business boom, but it was, it was a little bit different. Out of the gate, music streaming actually dropped from an audio perspective as more people were listening to the news. Video streaming uh, through YouTube went through the roof. And anytime something's played on, on YouTube, the same, same applies. You still have the royalties being generated. So, and people were listening to different kinds of things for, for, for short periods of time. But ultimately, streaming has recovered and, and grown through that, through that period, whereas other parts of the market have obviously been, been down, such as live performances, which, which, which are zero. Um, you know, the other part of these catalog valuations is, as well, we, we think there's going to be more capital continuing to, to move into them as time goes on. And you talked about the copyrights in the, in the U.S., there's a group called the Copyright Board, and they basically set what's called an all-in royalty pool that says, uh, in a simplistic example, Spotify, take all your subscription revenue, all your ad revenue, um, multiply it by this number, and this is what you pay out to the, to the songwriters who hold the royalties. Uh, that number is increasing from 10% to 15%. Uh, it started and gets to 15% in 2022. So, so that should, in theory, increase the value of all these assets. Now there is an appeal going on and there's uh, a lot of devil in the, de in the details, but uh, certainly the trend is to get more money into the hands of the rights holders and perhaps less into the hands of, of the Amazons and, and Spotify's of, of the world who, who are clearly dominating the, the industry with great business plans. I wanted to drill down a bit into the cash flow profile of some of these assets. You mentioned you know, steep initial decline curve once a very popular song comes out, gets played, and then sort of trails off into a sort of a steady and flat cash flow stream. But what I find fascinating is on occasion you'll have an old song blow up in popularity. For example, uh, a few months ago, they had this viral TikTok video with uh, Fleetwood Mac and Dreams with the yep. skateboarder in it, where I imagine if you own that royalty, then your cash flow just absolutely explodes because people hear it, you get more streams, and the popularity just comes back. Another one that I found interesting was for the new Batman movie, they actually used in the trailer a Nirvana song from the 1990s, and when people hear that, they remember, oh, that was an awesome song, I remember that, and they start playing it more and more. So is that part of, you know, is that really rare that it happens where uh, something explodes in popularity and the returns are significantly higher than expected? Or do you guys actively manage these assets such that you try to promote them 
and get various services, whether they're media, uh, et cetera, to use them. A bit of both, but that's a, that's an interesting example. I'm actually wearing my Nirvana Nevermind socks today in, oh, in, nice. in honor of this. <laughs> Great yeah. album. Yeah, fantastic album, F fantastic era as well. So, take, so, so Dreams, it, it generated 36 million streams in, in, in a couple of weeks right after that. Um, and it was basically some uh, uncle from Idaho riding a skateboard, drinking his ocean spray. And not only did it crank up the volume of the streams, but it also introduced that to other other folks. And in this particular case, I have to have the data, but it saw a 315% increase in Spotify streams from 23 to 27-year-olds who went alive when, when dreams came out. <laughs> so these things these things can go viral, and it, it it's a huge impact. Um, you can't necessarily predict it. Um, your partners had a had a Shakira song that was in a Super Bowl commercial and ultimately uh, you know went up whatever 800 800% more than, than it should have so those things can definitely happen TikTok is an interesting one because uh, there's new entrants into this market every day and new revenue sources and you know TikTok a few years ago wasn't thought of and, and they didn't have an appropriate license for music and they were playing things that were under 30 seconds so as a result there was a there's a long fight for unauthorized use of use of music and, and TikTok has finally sized, signed a licensing agreement but if something goes viral in there even before they had a licensing agreement to pay directly it would get listened to and streamed all over the place. Um, we've unfortunately had, uh, you know, a lot of celebrity artists and non-celebrity artists pass away in the in the past few years. You know, everything from Eddie Van Halen to David Bowie to everybody in between. And it's there, there's a study um, in some of the research groups that follow the space, look at it and look at the impact of of how streaming is impacted once the artist passed passed away. And and as you would imagine, uh, it it goes up by multiples over that period of time. Um, video game streaming is another area that's topical in the industry, but uh, Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, uh, has lots of content and, and considerable eyeballs on it. And, and for guys of my vintage, don't quite get it, but it's, it's happening. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of unlicensed music that's being played on, on, on Twitch. So they finally have a licensing agreement in place, but for some of the older stuff, there's now fighting because they're forcing them to take down content and it might be some of their bad content. So there's all this unlicensed music being used, used all over the place. And I think what we're seeing now with, with technology and more and more of these licensing opportunities come, come in and that just creates more revenue sources for the catalog holders. Um, certainly don't, don't expect that to change anytime soon. And it's really hard to even keep up. You know, you know Facebook's entered, Disney's recast their entire model towards a streaming model now. Um, and just watching is somewhat fascinated, but, but in the middle of it, just in terms of, of the way the rest of the world seems to be exponentially picking up on this marketplace. And, and, and it's the reality is they can distribute their content globally uh, very very efficiently uh, and for the inputs to that content which includes music on video or, or, or other sources uh, that's there's only going to continue to be uh, increased increased demand and and I think that's part of the reason why the Goldmans of the world thinks you know this could be 7x revenue by by 2030 it's interesting to note it's not just the streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple, etc., but you have all these, you know, social media networks, 
TikTok and things of that nature, and perhaps there's you know a business model in there where you could uh, team up with some of the influencers and split the yep. royalty or something like that. So there's definitely a lot going on. It seems like a, a a great asset class with these macro tailwinds and a lot of opportunity. You mentioned eight to twelve percent potential returns. Valuation still attractive, but. You also mentioned Taylor Swift and some drama with respect to that asset. There's potential patent changes. So from an investor's standpoint, where are the risks and what could go wrong? Well, if you own one particular catalog, and you talked about what's in in, in catalogs, I didn't appropriately hit on it, but we we've a catalog's just effectively a group of music that you're that you're buying. So so one acquisition, uh, our first asset had 109 masters in it as an example different unique tracks uh we've looked at catalogs that have one song in it right um and we've looked at catalogs that have up to 200 songs in it and, and everything in between and i think in the case of the single song uh we didn't ultimately acquire it but but it was a, a country song uh very well known very well played you know played at weddings and all these other things uh a good asset it, it was just probably too much concentration in the fund the time it came across our, our desk but other other catalogs we're looking at they might be a single album from an artist uh it could be a songwriter who's written multiple songs for a particular artist through different albums or for a bunch of different artists through different albums and uh, currently, um, you know, we're negotiating on a, a catalog that's that's in the Christian pop space, which isn't necessarily a space a lot of people think about, but uh, very sticky, very uh, growing in certain places, and actually actually great asset. We're also looking at a, an R and B catalog uh, of some significance, uh, and, a, and a country catalog. And the country catalog's got three songs in it, which are. Um, good songs, two would be considered very, very good songs. Uh, the R&B catalog's got about 135 masters and 75 individual tracks. So if you think about it, some songs get remade a couple different times. Uh, and when you talk about sync licensing, often artists might make an acoustic version as well as a, a live version. Or And the ones who are really good at it might even break out individual instrumental tracks, but but we don't see a lot of that. And then and then the, the Christian uh, catalog, which is... I would call it more pop, uh, has in and around 20 songs in it, give or take, uh, but a couple of very large hits. So it, it's it's all over the map. And the risk to go and buy a single asset or a single song for an individual investor is that if people start listening to it or stop listening to that, um, their revenue streams are going to go down. Now, they're still going to get paid. They're just going to get paid for a long period of time, You know, presuming they don't use leverage on it. They're they're not going to have a loss position, but it just may take a longer time to get paid out. Uh, the other side of it is if it grows, gets in a commercial, they might get paid out very, very quickly. So that's one of the risks is just constant concentration. And, and for us, we can only mitigate that by owning a variety of different assets. The second risk I think applies to every asset class, which is, which is interest rates. If someone has a view that interest rates are going to rise to seven eight percent in the short term uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the value of the cash flow coming in is going to change but the value of the catalogs will change because there will be an opinion that the terminal value of the asset when you sell it if you sell it mm -hmm. is, is going to be less so so you know the actual streaming will be agnostic to that you'll still be getting paid but like pretty much all assets 
the end value and the end buyer will likely you know be paying less for those kind of assets and then there is a reliance on 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 streaming and, and streaming providers and um, you know fortunately there's regulated rates so that artists don't need to negotiate directly with with Spotify or Amazon because they're not going to be able to successfully do that um, but but those providers continuing to have revenue bases, grow their revenue bases, and continue to offer streaming is a pretty critical part of it. We think the risk of that changing is, is, is really low, but it's important to consider and it'll be interesting to watch if we're going to see more consolidation in that space or, or, or not. Uh, we haven't necessarily seen price wars. Uh, what we have seen is new entrants into the space, uh, certain groups differentiating themselves such as Tidal or, or Amazon's got a high quality audio stream now as well where they're providing higher quality content or appealing to consumers in different ways. But during COVID, um, I believe the number was the, a the average uh, consumer had 12 different subscription services and the average millennial had 17. Uh, and that would include your, your video and everything else. So, so you keep that in mind, there's, there's lots of options. But if anything, these, these companies are continuing to increase the pricing on their subscriptions and that flows to to the artist. Uh, now there is an ad supported component to it and, and with COVID we've seen advertising revenues uh, you know or budgets effectively go down because the corporations on the back end have probably been selling less products. So a, a dramatic in decrease in advertising revenues can affect the pool as well but it's not as material as the, as the subscription revenue what's going on. So certainly it sounds like if an investor were to approach this asset class, they should have diversification, uh, just like you would in any other asset class. And certainly the fund that you guys run is the way to approach that. I wanted to chat about your music catalog because you uh, disclose some of the songs that you have in it. And I was surprised because there are a number of tracks on there, a number of assets that you know, I listen to all the time. Better Now by Post Malone, Coffee by Miguel, River by Eminem. So definitely a lot of high quality assets within the music catalog. I had a question for you. I wanted to put you on the spot. If you could choose one investment idea specifically say uh you know one individual music asset for the next 10 years what would you uh put the chips down on well my uh my kids have told me the answer to that is drake <laughs> <laughs> i've told them we can't afford drake because yeah. if drake's catalog trades it, it will be uh it, it will be north of 20 as, as a multiple but the but but those are the kind of catalogs i think that are going to be I iconic for very long periods of time you know, I think if you if you just had had one catalog, um, certainly some of the tried and true older content. Um, you, you know, you can think of the Led Zeppelins, you can think of the Rolling Stones, the Metallicas, you you, you name it. Any of those which have a lot of history uh, and continue to have a lot of plays over time are, are going to certainly, I think, hold hold their value. But but you do have to pay for those kind of catalogs if they're even available for sale. Certainly, uh, genres that have been growing, again, you know, hip-hop continues to grow. Um, we're starting to see country move uh, a little bit away from radio into streaming. Maybe not away from radio, but streaming is being more widely ad adopted. And I, I think any anything we, we would look at, if you own one asset, just want to make sure it had enough age and enough history um, and enough opportunities that it was in commercials and all those kind of things uh, that you could probably hold it and tuck it away forever. Do you have a personal favorite that you own currently? 
a song that you hear streaming, you're like, oh yeah, I love this, and I own it too. <laughs> well, there, there, there's, there's, um, there's, there's one. There's actually uh, hip hop's not my my core music, but there is one song that we're negotiating on right now uh, that that brings back a lot of memories from the from the uh, early early university days. So if we can get that one across the line, that would probably be the be the most iconic one that we would have. I would also like to mention that we've been talking about some of the catalog and uh, for anybody listening right now, you can go to the ICM website and see a Spotify playlist, uh, which I've been utilizing over this week, of your catalog, at least the ones that are listed on Spotify, which is really cool as well, especially for any of the investors to actually see their uh, investment at work. And if they play it, then you guys get uh, get paid a bit, right? <laughs> yeah, we would encourage everybody to uh, to uh, play them for at least thirty seconds at a time, twenty four hours a day. Until <laughs> but no, it's a, it's a really it's a really interesting space, and and we want to um, we want to work with with artists and so- and songwriters who are continuing to grow their career and and, and want to work with us as well uh, to build out the value of these existing assets. Also, um, so it's great to see, and and it's a it's a unique time in the market marketplace as well because uh, with artists being unable to tour um, you know live streaming in certain cases is an emerging trend uh, but it's, it won't replace tours for a lot of these artists so there's there's an increased willingness to to dispose of assets and we are getting you know first-hand discussion about uh, folks worried about changes in capital gains tax with the Biden administration moving in in the in the US and we think there could be an acceleration of deal flow between now and the end of the year, just because uh, some of the vendors are certainly certainly thinking thinking of that. And there's been a couple of larger transactions happening in the marketplace already. So that'll be a trend to watch between between now and the end of the year as well. All right. And just to wrap things up here, uh, where can investors learn more, whether it's your website, social media, things of that nature? Uh, www.musicroyaltyinvesting.com is is probably the easiest or you can go to the ICM Asset Management website. Uh, We have a presence on LinkedIn through ICM Crescendo. Uh, Our Twitter is not what it should be at this point in time. (laughs) But uh, probably LinkedIn and, and the website are the best places to go. Okay, great. Well, I want to thank you for providing uh, a lot of details, a lot of insights, and uh, just your view on the whole music royalty space, this this emerging asset class that I find fascinating, and there's just so many uh, interesting aspects to it. So definitely thank you for coming on the podcast. It was a real pleasure. Well, thanks again, and I, I think everyone's got an emotional connection to music, which which makes it really, really interesting as as well, whether you're, you're hearing it in a, in a movie or listening to it directly, and everyone has their own, own taste but it's definitely definitely an area we're pretty excited about and enjoy personally and 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 thanks thanks again uh to you guys for doing the podcast uh, you know there's a lot of great content on there and and i've uh, really enjoyed listening to it as well perfect thank you david thank you take care thanks Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast 
podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.